Father, we thank You again for our time tonight and pray that Your Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts to the content of truth of the Scripture and most especially to make us sensitive to the issues of the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. Tonight you have to hand out for the rest of this uh, first chapter and this will be the last evening until after the New Year's. Um, I have to go somewhere next Thursday. So um, we'll, try, we'll try to finish this chapter and then the next time we meet, I'll just go ahead and um, we'll hand out uh, the next time we meet the first part of the second chapter which deals with the birth of Christ. And you'll see there where we quickly get into some of the detailed stuff. So tonight, <clears throat> I think it's good that we uh, just kind of remember, recall some basic issues of how we're approaching um, the time of our Lord's incarnation, that we're treating this whole Thursday night thing for the next five or six months as basically a debate about the identity of Jesus. That's the issue. Who is Jesus Christ? And for hundreds and hundreds of years, the church... Um, went through a lot of debate procedures trying to figure out how do we state the person and identity of Jesus Christ so that all the other doctrines are protected. Um, very, very important that we understand uh, the Christ person. So we made several points. We said the theme is, as Jesus said to his disciples, who do you say I am? And we said that the importance of the question is that the answer to the question shows not what Jesus is or isn't, it shows the nature of the hearer. So it's the, the question's answer, who do you say I am? The answer to that question exposes <clears throat> the spiritual perspective of the person giving the answer. We also said uh, in Galatians 4.4, and we spent all the way through, well, we uh, actually have gone all the way to um, page 9 in the notes, presenting Christ's challenge and the preparation for the challenge. All of this is really an exposition of Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. In the fullness of time, God brought forth his Son. Now that's not talking about um, it was in the night and the shepherds were out in the fields or something. The fullness of time is a little bit more contentful than that. It means that both the pagan and Gentile world had enough exposure that there was no legitimate excuse for misinterpreting the identity of Jesus. That's what the fullness of time means. That the Jews and the Gentiles are held accountable to identify correctly this person, Jesus of Nazareth. There can't be an excuse that, well, we just weren't equipped. Not, it's not going to cut. Because in history, as we said, the pagan world was prepared. All four kingdoms of Daniel had happened. The Greeks had provided the intellectual tools of rigorous analytical thought. So people, although on a pagan basis, couldn't answer the questions, and really probably you could argue they couldn't even define the questions, at least there was enough thought floating around to be able to understand 
the claims of Jesus Christ. It's like today, uh, as history approaches the second advent and the return of Christ, and Christ setting up the world government that he will set up, if he had, think about it, if, if Jesus were to have come back in 850 A.D., would there have been a global consciousness among men in all the different countries, would there have been a global consciousness sufficient to appreciate what it means when Christ identifies himself as the king of kings? I don't think so. Because what you had is a regional consciousness. You, people in Europe were conscious of the region of Europe. People in Africa were conscious of the region of Africa. People in Asia were conscious of the region of Asia. But we are rapidly developing today, for the first time since Noah, a sense of global consciousness. And this is vital, because when Christ comes back, it's important that it's understood who he is and what he's about and what he's doing. So God always makes people hungry before he serves the meal. And that's what we mean by the fullness of times. There's always a preparation before God pulls something off in order that it be appreciated when he finally pulls it off. <clears throat> now, in the Jewish world, we finished last time with what they were going through, and we noted on page 8 the Maccabean conflict. We've noted in the notes that both the pagan world and the Jewish world had come just prior to Jesus come to a certain conscious level of their failures. Uh, Rome and the glory of Rome had kind of soured with the average person in the street. And we gave you some key historical quotes of what people in the street at the time of Jesus were saying. And there was a messianic expectation in the air. Clearly, the order of Rome was not satisfying the heart of people. And they craved for something else. Something else. We tried this, and that doesn't work. Tried this, and that doesn't work. Tried that, and that doesn't work. So there was a craving. And among the Jews, we said that they were under the kingdom of man. They had been crushed. And after the exile, they came back, yeah, but it was only a partial restoration. It wasn't a full restoration. So they felt the weight of a slave, secondary nation, under power politics of the Gentile world. So they weren't in such a great mood either. Now into that, into that milieu, on page 9 we said, Christ comes and presents his challenge. And what we want to look at is two things. I want to look first, the topic on page 9 is the method of his presentation, and then page 10, the nature of the presentation, the comprehensiveness of it. Now by the method of presentation, what I mean there is, that the Gospels focus on the Jewish question. Jesus was a Jew. He came to Jewish people with a Jewish program that Jewish people should have understood. Because remember, they had 2,000 years of history. The Jewish people, since the time of Abraham, had been prepared. They had gone through a series of events, and it was clear that these events were leading somewhere and were teaching something. Down toward the end, they saw that the kingdom and the people were hopelessly sinful, that if there were to be salvation and the kingdom of God introduced into history, it had to come from Yahweh. 
It had to come from the God of the Old Testament. It couldn't come from man. It couldn't come from the kings. It couldn't come from the, quote, democracy, the power of the people. So all the excuses and the false uh, alarms and the, and the false roots and the detours had all been closed off, logically speaking. So what we want to move now to is that Jesus Christ, in the method of presentation, comes first to the covenant nation, to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile, to the Jew first. Why is that? As we said last week on page 10, the reason was, goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant decrees a certain design to history. And in the design of history, Israel is the conduit of revelation. Why is that? Remember we said way back, I don't know whether you remember it or not, but we made a point back two years ago when we were dealing with the call of Abraham. And I don't know if you remember, but I made a thing about the exclusivity of the truth. And by that I mean is that starting with Abraham, God did not reveal himself anymore to corporate humanity. He withdrew that. He allowed corporate humanity to paganize out. And then he said, I'm going to talk to you indirectly instead of directly now. I'm going to talk to you through this chosen instrument. That gave rise to the concept of exclusive truth. That means there aren't, for every people group on earth, if you have ten different groups, there aren't ten different valid answers to the questions. There's only one group that has the answer. Now, this is very offensive. This strikes at the heart of the pagan. Why can't, why? I think that's, that's not fair. All right? Think back. This is where the power of the framework happens. Why did God have to call Abraham out? Why does he have to come to an exclusivistic methodology? For the reason that when he tried it the universal way, people universally paganized. So the point was that all men, all people groups have lost their right to the truth. Very simple. The reason for exclusivity is because you do not have any longer a right to the truth. Try that one next time you're in a debate. The reason why the gospel is narrow is because everybody's wrong. That's why. And of course, this is what they like to hear and they can't believe that you're saying this. But don't be embarrassed to say it. I keep remembering. My favorite, one of my favorite moments was watching Bill Buckley take on Phil Donahue on a program. And Phil Donahue got in this big talk show. That was a big talk show one time. And he got Bill Buckley up there and he, he started waving that big bony finger of his and saying it, it Buckley, he says, he says, why do you, because Buckley's an evangelical Catholic Christian, so he waves his finger at Buckley and he says, I don't understand, Mr. Buckley. Why is it that you Christians think you're the only people with the truth? And then he goes into a commercial break. And then when he comes back from the commercial, then Buckley looks at him in that typical way he has, if you watch him, and he says, well, Phil, it's because we are the only people with the truth. And you, it, it, was a, it was a fantastic moment because that was not the answer that Phil Donahue expected Buckley to get, see? Because he wove his hand in his face, he expected Buckley to back up. He expected Buckley to compromise. 
And Buckley very forthrightly said, no, because you're wrong, Phil, I'm right. That's the way it is. And it was just like somebody threw cold water in a guy's face. I mean, just for a split second, he was wordless. So exclusivity is unavoidable in a sinful world. I'm sorry, that's the corollary to the fall of man. All right, now that's what's going on in why Jesus works through Israel first. And that's why there's those anti-Gentile sayings that we we mentioned. Um, And the, the quote I give you, quote footnote number 10, from a Jewish observer. Jesus was a Jew totally and thoroughly. He came to give his people an opportunity to nationally accept Christ. And I mention this because when we read the Gospels, you've got to keep in mind there's, there's a lot of themes going on in the Gospels. It's not just sweet stories about Jesus, and it's not just leading up to the cross. There's more to it than that. And one of the themes that's going on in the Gospels is this one. Is the nation Israel going to nationally recognize Jesus as the Messiah of the nation? It's a national decision, not just individuals in the nation. So yes, individuals are involved, obviously. A nation can't decide if individuals don't. But there is an issue over whether or not Israel nationally will receive Christ. And that question is basically answered halfway through all four Gospels. And the answer is no. And it's when the answer begins to be no that Jesus shifts his methodology and he withdraws and he begins to groom the faithful remnant for a new thing called the inter-advent age. The inter-advent age isn't explained in the Old Testament. It came about because of this strange thing that happened. The Messiah comes to the nation and he's rejected. Now, it sets up something in history that sort of, it's foreseen, obviously, God foresaw it, and it's, you can see it, read it backward. You know, Monday morning quarterbacks are very brilliant. You can read it, you can read it after the foul. Oh, yeah, that was in the Old Testament. Yeah, well, if you were there, you wouldn't have seen it that clearly. So, now we come to this halfway thing in all four Gospels. And then you see Jesus begin to talk about the Spirit's going to come. And what is the Spirit going to do? You shall be witnesses. Where? Jerusalem, Judea, and to the uttermost parts of the world. See the order? That's all Old Testament. That's not New Testament. There's nothing new about it. It's the same old thing, same methodology that you see back in Genesis 12, verse 1, with Abraham. Now, the second thing we want to look at tonight, in page 11, is the fact that when Christ presented himself, he not only presented himself methodologically to the Jew first, but Jesus Christ presented himself in a unique way. And we want to grasp this because other teachers don't do this. This is the uniqueness of Jesus. Himself. And the revelation comes through word, that's the teaching. So Jesus Christ was a teacher. In that, he did not differ from Buddha, from Confucius, or from anybody else. But where Jesus does differ is that it's word and deed. And the deed is an outgrowth of his person. That's what makes the difference. 
It's the person of Jesus Christ and his, if he's wrong, arrogant claims that Buddha did not do, Confucius did not do, Muhammad did not do, no other religious teacher in history ever said the sort of crazy things Jesus did. None of them. So you want to fasten onto this little thing because when you get in discussions, it's good to remember that, of course, there's no danger in being refuted because nobody reads the Bible anymore. But um, the point is that if people would read the Bible, they would understand that it's a totally different ball game here. This is a totally different ball game. And you cannot compare Confucius with Jesus, and you cannot compare Buddha with Jesus without coming to a conclusion that it's the person of Christ that figures preeminently in his teaching. It's not just what he says. It's who is saying what he is saying. So on page 11, I introduce the four things that we're going to be studying. The four events, his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. You follow me, please, at the top of page 11, where I say that Jesus' entry into this world was unique according to New Testament testimony. By the virgin birth, Jesus succeeded in acquiring a legitimate humanity without sin. His full divine nature was successfully combined with true human nature in one person. Thus, while other religious teachers claim to represent God, including, by the way, Moses, Isaiah, other religious teachers claim to represent God or to be a manifestation of deity, Jesus claimed to be God. Okay? Now, why, why do I make, make a deal out of this? Because that's part of the presentation. And people have to decide. You're going to reject that or you're going to accept it. You can't be neutral about this. Second thing down here, during his life, Jesus said and did many outstanding things. In later parts of the pamphlet, case will be made that one of the most outstanding features of Jesus' career was the authority he assumed over man and nature. Jesus challenged people to consider how he exercised control over the elements of nature. And then notice the last sentence, very critical for his teaching method during his life. Whereas other teachers justified what they taught by an appeal to a standard of truth outside of themselves, Jesus insisted that he was the standard of truth himself. You see, you can't come at the biography of Jesus and, like C.S. Lewis said, and say that this guy's a good teacher. Jesus does not, and Lewis was absolutely right when he said this in his book, Mere Christianity, Jesus doesn't leave you with that option. You either have got to put this guy down as a lunatic, a fabrication of the church, or who he claimed to be. But he can't be a good, sweet little teacher. Not if you're intellectually honest. Then we deal with the death of Christ. Jesus was the only member of the human race who without guilt of suicide chose to die. When Jesus died, he accomplished what no other teacher ever accomplished and what no Old Testament sacrifice ever did. The death of Christ has some unique features to it. Jesus did not die by the injuries of the cross. We're going to refute that point. He was not a victim of crucifixion. Jesus Christ chose the exact moment of death. And the choice was his. He, in one sense, put himself to death on the cross as a voluntary sacrifice for our sin. Then we'll go to the resurrection. And, of course, 
He does demonstrate the long promise, and this is the significance of the resurrection, not that it was a magic event that just popped out of the grave. There's something bigger. Remember, you've got to interpret these events in the light of the Old Testament. So a key sentence here is, he thus demonstrated the long-promised new creation had begun to appear. When Jesus got up out of that grave in his resurrection body, that was the first piece of the new universe, walking around. Whereas in the first universe, the heavens and the earth were created, and then what was the last creation? Man. In the new universe, it's the people that are created first, then the new heavens and the new earth to contain them. It's exactly opposite. So, the Lord Jesus Christ now, wherever he is, in his physical human body, for his physical human body does exist at a point, someplace. The Lord Jesus exists as the first existent piece of this new eternal universe. Well, what we want to do tonight is we want to then say, okay, Jesus presented himself to the Jews. He presented his person behind his teaching with at least four unique things that he pulled off that no one else has ever pulled off. All four of these events make Jesus Christ unique. And it's useful to remember how unique our Lord was and that he can't be classified as religious teacher. Oh, I, you know, I guess it'll be out this week or next week, but usually this time of year, Time Magazine, Newsweek, goes, they scrape the bottom of the barrel, editors need a story, everybody's not reading Time and Newsweek because they're ready for the holidays and Christmas is on everybody's mind. So in order to make the, newspaper, the magazine sell, they always have to run a story about Jesus. Then you sit there as a Christian, you open this story about Jesus and every reason under the sun why he couldn't be who he claimed to be. Well, Dr. So-and-so with three PhDs says that Jesus really never claimed that. That was a figment of someone's imagination in the church. Or another guy says, well, Jesus was wrong. He, he just was a Jew that just got ahead of himself or something. There's always a story like that. Every single Christmas in one of the news magazines. I have never, ever picked up a news magazine around Christmas time and seen a story that presents orthodoxy. But that's because of the idiots who edit them. All right, let's go now to the response to the challenge. Because there was a response to the challenge. And it was a very serious um, parting of friends that happened. I mean, Jesus Christ splits families. Jesus Christ splits nations. Jesus Christ splits people apart. He doesn't just build. He splits. And the, the responses are twofold. He has not been well received by the majority of people. And so we're going to say first on page 12, we're going to go through the response among the Jews. And if we have room, uh, we hope to get through the response of the Gentiles. I'm going to try to get that done tonight. There's distinctive tones of response to Jesus Christ. And let's watch, watch these, the, how this happens. I'm going to, I should have listed this in numbers, uh, paragraph numbers here on page 12 because there are distinct elements in the Jewish response to Jesus that you need to see to read the Gospels carefully and observantly. The first thing you need to understand about the response to, the Jesus, is, to Jesus is in the second sentence on the top of page 12, I list some Bible verses. We won't turn to those tonight, but do look those up. They speak of the remnant, the faithful remnant. Now, in our Old Testament studies, we've run into this one before. 
You remember that during the time of the prophets, when the kingdom was in decline, the nation apostatized. You remember that little passage in the Old Testament having to do with the prophet Elijah? And he was complaining that there wasn't anybody around and he was the only guy and God said he had 7,000 other people who had not bowed the knee to Baal. That is one of the famous locations in Scripture where the concept of remnant starts to appear seriously. And from that point on, it becomes more and more evident that the prophets are a minority, that the majority are never going to go along with the program, and that's why there's judgment that falls upon the nation. The remnant simply isn't big enough percent-wise of the population to avoid national condemnation. It's very sobering that it appears that God works on a remnant basis with all people groups. Remember what was the bargaining going on with Abraham? This was in a Gentile city. And Abraham was saying, will you, will you save the city? And God says, find me 50, you know, and the, the first bargaining went on. And that's why there's the joke about why Jews are so good in business. If you'd been bargaining with God all the years, you'd be good in bargaining with men. So Abraham has this bargaining going on for the price of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he wants God to save Sodom and Gomorrah if he can find so many people. But see, it's the concept of the remnant there. Finally, it turns out there was only Lot in that family. And God says, that's not enough. That's not enough to save Sodom and Gomorrah. Out of here. Now, I think there's a reason why God works in terms of remnants. It's because, if you think about it, if the remnant gets too small, then there's an overwhelming peer pressure, just simply overwhelming peer pressure in all levels of society that drags everybody down. And from that point, it's like it can't be redeemed. There's almost like there's a self-destruction level that builds in. And after that's reached, it's hands off and let's get clean that house out. And we'll start something else somewhere else. So, Jesus, when he came to this earth, it was the same principle. There was the mass of national Jews. And then inside the mass of national Jews, there was a subset of the remnant. And it's that remnant inside the nation to which Jesus, at the midpoint of all four Gospels, moves. Jesus' addresses at the first part of the Gospels are to the nation. In the second part of the Gospels, the addresses are to the remnant. There's a start, there's a shifting going on. And you want to be alert to that as you read your pages in the New Testament. Now, what did the Jews use as an excuse? Number one, bottom of, paragra- bottom of the first paragraph. Here's the first reason why they got rid of Jesus Christ. So let's look at the dynamics of rejection because those dynamics are still active spiritually in the world. Let's turn to John 11. It's quite clear because it's explicitly stated in this Gospel a reason why Jesus Christ was considered expendable. John chapter 11, verse 27. Excuse me, it's not 27. It is 47. 47 to 52. 
Therefore, the chief priests and Pharisees convened the council and they were saying, what are we doing? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go, now here's the crux. Watch this verse. Observe carefully. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Why was that a fear? What did we review just last week in class? What did we say was the word on the street? The word on the street in both Jewish and Gentile circles was that there was going to be a ruler coming out of the east. Now, if you were Roman authorities, would you be comfortable with that? I wouldn't. And I wouldn't particularly be comfortable with it when it was on my eastern frontier that was habitually a pain in the neck for the Roman armies to maintain law and order. Right in the colon, the Near East to the Romans was as big a pain as the Near East is to the United Nations today. It's the same thing, same argument, same fights going on all the time and there's no peace. Things haven't changed. So here in the middle of all this, all the gasoline around, here comes somebody lighting a match. And the Jews knew and felt oppressed by Maccabean Wars, gave you that background, see, the Jews feel under the oppression of the Romans and they fear the Romans. The Romans had a great power. So the first reason for the rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ is political security. The mere presence of Jesus is a political threat. It still is. Here's why it is a political threat. If a person, say you or me, have our ultimate allegiance not to the state, but to Kyrios Iesu, the Lord Jesus, what does that do to the authority of the person who wants to be in charge of the state? It makes him second best. And if you don't have authority over all, you don't have authority at all. That's the political threat. Jesus' political threat is felt today in the court system of this country. That is why the Bible is considered to be a very dangerous piece of literature. Because it teaches people to have a standard of authority that cannot be controlled by the press, by the media, by peer pressure, or anyone else. Now, they should not have any fear. Why should not a legitimate ruler of the state have any fear of Jesus? Because what does Jesus turn around in Romans 13 and do? Be obedient to the authorities. But the problem is, it's a derived obedience, you see? In other words, why should I be obedient to the state? Well, there's several reasons. I mean, I could say because I'm afraid of getting arrested. I'm afraid of physical force. And that's intimidation is what it amounts to. But there's a reason. I am obedient to the state because of what Jesus tells me to do. But you see, the problem with that is that leaves a loose end for the political ruler because he's dependent on this Jesus and your relationship and my relationship with him. And that's something he can't control. He can't control. See the word? Can't control. Can't control. And that's what's happening here. They're fearful that the Romans are going to come in. 
And so, he says, the Romans will come and they'll take away our place. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest, said, you know nothing at all, nor do you know, take, take count, it's expedient for you that one man should die for the people, that the whole nation should not perish. Now, John's Gospel, I always love John's Gospel, because John's Gospel has some of the most beautifully constructed irony to it. What do you see in that last verse that is terribly ironic? Think about it for a minute. Observe that text. What is, do you see a double meaning there? How does Caiaphas intend the meaning to read? He means political expediency. One, die for all. So we don't all get killed by the Romans. Let them kill one of us and get rid of it and solve the problem. But in a deeper meaning, what has Caiaphas just said? That one will die for the nation in a way that Caiaphas hasn't even thought about. You see how elegant and how sovereign God is at the words in this gospel? It's amazing how he pulls this off. So, number one, political security. Jesus is a threat to political security and he still is. All right, number two, second paragraph. It's the old bogey from the Old Testament, legalism. In the same vein, the Jews had experienced over and over their inability to keep the law. They should have been driven to Yahweh and His grace for the power to keep the law. But to replace the Torah and its vital gracious spirit, many of them substituted an intricate network of legalistic human regulation. In a Talmudic passage, for example, one reads the rabbinical instruction. Now look at this one. Look at this quote. Isn't this a ripper? One reads the rabbinical instruction to pay more attention to the rules than the original scripture. Look what it says. My son, be more careful in the observance of all the words of the scribes than in the words of the Torah. For in the words of the laws of the Torah, there are positive and negative precepts. But as to the laws of the scribes, whoever transgresses any of the enactments of the scribes, they incur a penalty of death. What's the motive for obedience? under legalism? It's fear. Of whom? Men. Legalism is ultimately peer pressure. It's group pressure. It's my fear of what other people think about me. It has nothing to do with God. It's what God thinks about me. And this is why, in the last paragraph on page 12, this is the second reason why Jesus rejected. The first one is political security. The second one is legalism. Starting with John the Baptist and the Sermon on the Mount, what did Jesus say? That your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the who? Scribes and Pharisees. What scribes? The guys in this quote. These guys. And the fact that the Lord Jesus almost went out of his way to offend these people. Let's turn to Matthew 9, verse 10. I mean, the most angry exchanges did not occur between Jesus and the politicians. It did not occur between Jesus and the prostitutes and the murderers and what we will say the gross sinners. The most angry exchanges in the Gospels came 
between Jesus and the legalists. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 10, it happened when he was reclining at the table, many tax gatherers and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and disciples. By the way, what does that tell you about what he must have been like personally? Must have been uh, sociable. John the Baptist was not, by the way. He had a very unsociable, ascetic personality. And Jesus comments at one point, he says, you didn't like John because he was ascetic. Now you're complaining about me and, and I like to go to parties. You know, what's your problem? So these people felt comfortable with him. I mean, they're dining with him. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax gatherers and sinners? But when he heard it, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And if you trace out those verses, we don't have time tonight, but in the bottom of verse, uh, page 12, you see Matthew 9, Matthew 12. You notice they're all Matthew quotes. It's not that they're not in the other Gospels, but I like to quote Matthew on these items because Matthew was what? He was a bureaucrat that worked with people a lot. And he, he's really, he's got his hands on the pulse of the way people think. And you'll see Matthew, of all the four gospel writers, he observes these things about people. Okay. Now, on page 13, there's a third reason why the Lord Jesus um, was crucified. This one was also very, very emotional and, and really upset people. The loyal devotion to Yahweh, which is the very essence of Jewish historical preparation, apparently had been transformed into a misplaced loyalty to exceedingly questionable interpretations of the Old Testament. By Jesus' day, the second temple buildings had attained a pseudo-sanctity reminiscent of the sinful, impregnable image of the first temple under the pre-exilic kings. Back in that era, if you recall part four, the pre-exilic nation had forgotten the conditions of blessing under the Sinaitic covenant in their desire to remember the unconditional election of the Abrahamic covenant. Jesus' remarks were thus construed as an attack upon God's sacred ground. Remember that? He said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Of course, he's talking about his body, but the very fact that the people, boy, they picked up the stones when they heard that one. Were you going to blow up the temple? I mean, it'd be just like the Muslims today, worried about the, the dome of the rock there. And somebody says, we're going to take it out. You're going to What? You're going to start a world war? And that's literally what would happen. Anybody messes with that particular thing in, in Islam. So, point being that the temple had replaced God in sanctity for the Jews. And you can kind of understand how they might have got that way. I mean, they had to fight the Romans. They had to fight the Syrians. They had to fight Antiochus Epiphanes. And when they had a chance to build a temple, they're going to build a temple. And they don't want anybody messing with it. So, the temple was almost like the Alamo is to Texas. That was the place where, that, by golly, we'll fight to the last man for that one. Right there. And, that, and then Jesus makes light of it. Jesus wasn't disrespectful, but he put it in perspective. So number three was Jesus seemed to, under, seemed to undercut the sanctity of the temple. A fourth reason is that the popular imagery of the Messiah pictured him as a glorious king, not a suffering servant. And Jesus was obviously not a glorious king. Palm Sunday was the closest he ever came to it, and within 24 to 48 hours, the same people who had thrown palms in his way were the ones yelling for his crucifixion. Very superficial. 
So, um, all these uh, crazy interpretations of the Old Testament are explained in the New Testament, and they are explained as a hardening of the heart. Isaiah 6, 9 through 12. Another glaring example of a highly questionable Old Testament interpretation was the idea that Messiah was not to be identified as Yahweh himself. So, number four was the fact that he wasn't a glorious king, but number five, almost in reverse, but he was claiming to go around and be God. The Messiah can't be God. So, see, all the stereotypical interpretations that they had made of the Old Testament collided with his claims. Now, I want to mention something else and that's why I have an extensive quote here from Arnold Fruchtenbaum um, about Isaiah 53. Let's turn there so everybody understands what we're talking about. Back halfway through the Old Testament, Isaiah, Isaiah 53, very famous passage. This is pre-exilic. One of the most complete, well, probably the most complete passages in the Bible. Now, how did the Jews interpret this? Remember, they had two messiahs. They believed in Jesus' day the son of Joseph would be the suffering messiah, son of David would be the glorious messiah. So they took the glory passages and the suffering passages, they couldn't fit them together in one person, so they made them two people. And that was uh, a Jewish idea of how to get logic into the interpretation. But in, in Isaiah 53, verse 2, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed and stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Now look at verse 5 and think about what you have just read in verse 5. That is a tremendous introductory statement in the Old Testament that proves vicarious suffering for sin. Notice what it says. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, chastisement, so forth, so forth, so forth. Now, if you listen to modern debate, you'll hear it said that Jews don't believe this passage refers to the Messiah today. The Jews say that must refer to Israel, the nation. They've turned the interpretation from the Messiah to the nation of the Messiah. That's why I've got this extensive quote because I want to read through this quote now. I want to correct a false idea about that interpretation of Isaiah 53. To interpret Isaiah 53 as speaking of Messiah is not non-Jewish. See, that's the accusation Jews today make. That's just a Gentile way of reading it. It is not a Gentile way. In fact, if we are to speak of the traditional Jewish interpretation, it would be that the passage speaks of the Messiah. The first one, now look at the dates here. Watch the dates. The first one to expound the view that this referred to Israel rather than the Messiah was Shlomo Yitzhaki, better known as Rashi, date 1000 A.D. So this was over a thousand years later the Jews decided on this interpretation. 
That means for 900 years after Jesus Christ, they still held that this was the messianic passage. He was followed by David Kimchi in 1160. But this was to go contrary to all rabbinical teaching of that day and of the preceding 1,000 years. Today, Rashi's view has become dominant in Jewish and rabbinic theology. But that is not the Jewish view, nor is it the traditional Jewish view. Those closer to the original writings who had less contact with the Christian apologists interpreted it as speaking of the Messiah. Very important. Other Jewish objections have been added to the first century. These include, if you were to interview Jews today, why don't you believe that Jesus is the, your Messiah? Here's some answers that the modern Jew would add to those that we've already studied. They would include Jesus' failure to bring peace, the anti-Semitic behavior of groups identified with Christian faith, the impossibility of a man becoming God, and the fear that a Jew who accepts Jesus will cease to be a Jew. All those figure into the dynamic behind the Jewish rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, that's the Jews. And that's why the Bible says, He came to His own, and His own received Him not. All kinds of reasons. Now let's look at the response of the Gentiles. And we'll read through this, because I want to finish this out so we get it done before we come back. The Jews had their reasons for rejecting Christ. The Gentiles have a different set of reasons. Both are sinful, both are rebellious, but they're different brands of rebellion. So let's look at the Gentile brand of unbelief. Gentiles continued their idolatry of nature and arrogant estimation of man's mental capabilities. Pilate's remark to Jesus epitomized the majority Gentile view. Where are you from, Pilate says. No answer. Don't you, speak, don't you speak to me? Don't you know that I have the power to release you and I have the power to crucify you? See the Gentile mentality? See, that's not the way the Jewish mentality was. How do we see Caiaphas? He was afraid of the power. I mean, if there isn't something that has a satanic ring to it, what did Jesus say in Isaiah, uh, Satan say in Isaiah 14? I will be like the Most High God. And that's something that those of us coming out of a Gentile tradition, we share that spirit. I have the power. I'll add Jesus as it is convenient for me to add him to my pantheon. In other words, whatever importance and authority Jesus had, so the Gentile mind worked. He was beneath the importance and authority of the almighty state. See? Rome. Rome was the fourth kingdom. As an illustration, now what we want to, we'll get into this later in the next chapter, a thing called Arianism. Arianism is the belief that Jesus Christ was a man on whom the Spirit of God came. Jehovah's Witnesses are Arians. As an illustration, Arianism, the main heresy denying Jesus' full divine nature, was consistently popular in church history with people who believed in dictatorships and total political power. Very interesting point. This is why, folks, today in Eastern Europe, where Arianism had a tremendous influence, there's a tendency 
to not participate in government, but to let it over to the powers that be. That's why Russian people are so passive politically. They want a dictatorship. Wherever you have a weak Christology, you have a strong state. Watch that. Those two are political opposites. And why do you suppose that's so? Let's run that by one more time. Wherever you have a weak Christology, you have a strong state. It's who is Kyrios? Who is the Lord? If you have a big Lord, Jesus, you're not tempted to worship the state. But if Jesus is only a man on whom the Spirit of God came, and the Spirit of God works in the providence and so on, there's an open door to have the state because there's no one else there in the power vacuum. So, as an illustration, Arianism, the main heresy denying Jesus' full divine nature, was consistently popular with statists. Rush to any rights, by denying that Christ is Lord and Savior, Arianism had made the state man's Lord and Savior. And the Arians were dedicated statists. The emperor, not Christ, his word in the church, was central to Arians. He points out, in modern form, statist theology goes further. It not only ignores Christ and the church, it begins to deny their right to exist. A critical background is the issue of taxation. The modern state assumes the position of having the right to tax the church as a corpus politicum, and then magnanimously forgoes this right on the ground that this church is a charitable and non-profit institution. The hidden premise is that the church is under the state and exists by its permission. You see? Political threat. The gospel is insidiously anti-state and people who are conscious, half conscious of this, get upset. There's something upsetting about the gospel of Christ when it's preached in all the glory of the person of Christ. That is, that is upsetting. Another issue is shown by an earlier dialogue between Pilate and Christ. Jesus says, everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate sarcastically said, well, what is truth? So another feature of the Gentile mind, on a level deeper than the issue of statism, less viable but more lethal, modern pagan thought amplifies Pilate's mark. What is truth? Now, follow me, please, as I go through uh, this page 15, because this is what you will read next week or the week after in your local news magazine. Behind it all is this same theme. It will come out, different people express it different ways, but watch it. As architects of developed paganism, Gentile world leaders make all truth ultimately subjective. That means it comes out of my heart. It's what I think. You've all heard the... The man on the street knows this. Now, they're not philosophers, but they buy into it. Well, that's good for you, but this works for me. You know? Excuse me? We don't have truth then. There's no truth. It's whatever works for you. Because I determine truth. It comes out of here. It's not external. There's no standard. There's no yardstick. There's no weights and measures. There's nothing out there, but I decide what the truth is. Well, I believe. Truth to them is merely what one thinks is true. Now, get the difference. Truth now has become what men think it is. 
Van Til describes the Greek fountainhead of paganism. Socrates discovered the principle of interpretation, which man ought best to follow to lie within himself in noose rather than in water, in the indeterminate, in air, or in anything else which was external to man. Socrates possessed a voice which spoke to him, but his advice was actually internally consonant with his own consciousness. Namely, if the gods ever told him anything, he would by himself of necessity be relegated to the task of judging the truth or falsity thereof. The principle was an internal one. Where's the standard of judgment? In me or external to me? What's the ultimate authority? Such a view of truth makes any kind of historical verbal revelation from God to man impossible. Impossible. Since all truth, according to this form of fleshly thinking, is ultimately subjective, one cannot reach real truth about God as Christ insists that one can do. Alan Richardson, for example, illustrates this kind of thinking. We'll get more into this as we go into the life of Christ, but watch it because every university course that you will ever go to that talks about the Christian faith and every social studies textbook that talks about the Christian faith says the same thing. This is not some abstruse philosophical thing that is only PhDs worried about. This stuff is in junior high textbooks. The facts about, Jesus of, about the Jesus of history are accessible to us only through the apostles' faith in him. The gospel writers were not biographers or historians, and they chose to tell us only such things about the life and teaching of Jesus as seemed good to them to illuminate essential aspects of the church's faith in him. You, hear, you get the flavor of that whole statement? Look at where the truth is coming from. The writers, they chose to tell us only such things about the life and teaching of Jesus. What does the New Testament say that shall come upon the disciples and will lead them into all truth? The Holy Spirit. Who's the author of the New Testament? The Holy Spirit. Who decided what is in the canon and what isn't in the canon? The Holy Spirit. There's no Holy Spirit here. Where's the spirit of truth? It's in man. Alan Richardson, he's an English theologian, liberal guy. If you look at the footnote, you'll see he wrote the Bible in an age of science. And they chose to tell us only such things about life and teaching of Jesus as seemed good to them. They were the final criterion of what happened in the New Testament. So in, and this is the, my statement I put in italics because it summarizes the whole point. In this modern unbelieving thought, statements about Jesus would be merely autobiographical testimony about what early Christians thought. They would not be statements about objective reality external to their thoughts. In other words, it would be as though I am telling you that something is true outside and we can't get out of this room. And so therefore, we all, I, I describe this thing that's outside. And so each one of us makes in our imaginative thoughts and ideas of what this thing is outside, but we never go outside to see what it is because we can't get out there. You see what would happen? Every one of us would give testimony. We could have a testimony meeting. Everybody gets up and describes what's on their heart. You know, their depraved, wicked, evil, perverted heart. Who wants garbage? Without an external standard, you shouldn't care what's on my heart. Nor should I care about what's on your heart. What we should care about is what is true. 
And in this case, the only way we could tell what is true is to go out the door and see, because it exists outside of us. And that's what we're saying. Modern unbelieving thought has no outside. It's only what the church said, what somebody said, what Dr. So-and-so says, who says. But there's nothing there to, that's real. Their views about Jesus would be more important in degree than what early Christians ate in war, but no different in kind. They all simply show ancient opinion in life. That's all the New Testament would do. It just reflects ancient opinion in life. You see where that leads us? Back with Pilate. What is true? What is true? So, what we've done now is show that the, where the people are peeling out. They have been confronted with the Lord Jesus Christ in His birth, His life, His death, and His resurrection. And we're going to see that every one of these events are misconstrued, absolutely misconstrued. You want to read ahead for the next time we get together, page 16 and 17, I've summarized very quickly where we're going. I take each of those four events and I show you how the Christian interprets the event and how the unbeliever interprets the event. We need to know, people, how unbelief operates. It's all around us. It's in our own hearts because we're not completely saved, completely sanctified. And, and because we're not completely sanctified, our flesh picks up and resonates with the world. So we have to identify where we drift. It's natural to the flesh to drift in these directions. Okay, we're going to close uh, up here tonight. If some of you have some questions, we'll be at the front for a little bit. Um, we'll just uh, close with a word of prayer now. Um, you will be, we'll, won't be meeting until after the holidays, so I hope you all have enjoy time with your families and with the Lord mostly. Father, we thank you that you have provided for the truth, that the Lord Jesus Christ said he was the truth, and we pray that we would be better witnesses to the truth by seeing ever more clearly who the Lord Jesus Christ is, what he has done and the perversion of the depraved heart of man and how it can see the light and deny the light is even there. We pray that there would be a piercing of blindness in our hearts and an illumination to the great truths of Scripture and that we could truly worship in both knowledge and truth through the Holy Spirit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Questions. Uh, we have a few minutes. We can um, discuss. Hey. Yes. Mm-hmm. Or 
Yeah, the very fact uh, what what Debbie's raised is is it looks like there is a vast popularity. Jesus was a popular figure. And so when the when when the Caiaphas says what he's saying here, he probably I mean his his premise is wrong, but his second thing is right. The premise is that the Romans are going to clobber us if we have a have an insurrection here. But which is false because if everybody believed in Jesus, what would have happened? The kingdom would have come. And the Romans wouldn't have had a chance. So the premise is wrong. But given that premise and given the observation that he had vast popularity, um, then given all that, uh, it's conceivable that Caiaphas would have had a big problem. There would have been some musical chairs politically in the whole thing. So it was true. Movements like that are deeply threatening. And what is so... We, we have to appreciate this because otherwise we spin our wheels because we get angry as Christians about why is it that we get treated so abusively. Um, I mean, uh, my son just had been filling in, substituting for some of the schools in Harford County and he came back the other night and he was telling us, you know, he says... You go down the halls in school, we got posters for Kunza or whatever it is, we've got posters for Hanukkah, we've got everything in there except there's not one about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, excuse me, but what is this holiday all about here? I mean, it's just absolutely 180 degrees wrong. So, you know, you just get so, so unbelievably. Uh, this is so unbelievably stupid. But on the other hand, I think we have to use the reverse psychology. That if people, um, you know, you get into a discussion like that, um, I've tried it once or twice and I always get a very interesting response. Um, I say, well, um, if I were outside the Christian faith, I'd be afraid of Christmas too. I can understand why you suppress it. Very dangerous message. And uh, when you say that, it's not what they're expecting. And so it's, it's a great way of opening up a door by, by admitting that. But, but it's, and it's going along with the fact that it truly is upsetting. The gospel is bad news if you intend to reject it. It's not good news. So for that reason, um, there, we, we have to get into the... the pagan, Gentile mentality um, of why Christ is such an issue. But we do want to remember that there is, there is a controversy of profound proportions that always accompanies the gospel. And if you tend to be the kind of person, and I think we all are most of the time, we don't want to upset people. We don't want to constantly be towing the line Constantly the source of, you know, everybody's getting along till we walk in the room. Um, and you don't want to be that kind of a person. None of us want to be that kind of a person. And hopefully we don't have to, uh, you know, we, we shouldn't be that kind of people just because of us. But there will come times when unavoidably you and I will be the people who just irritate everybody else. And we just have to be sure they're not being irritated at us, but irritated at the Lord. 
that there's not, not anything that comes out of all this you will see as we go through event after event, after we go through all the birth, we, we're going to go through so many heresies. I think it's four or five major heresies we're going to deal with in the next chapter over the birth of Christ, the arguments over why he can't be the God-man, why he wasn't the God-man, why it's impossible for him to be the God-man. And those same arguments that were covered in those first centuries are the same arguments that float around today. Nothing has changed. So, I always believe in going back to the, where these arguments started and learning them well, learning the outlines, and then they always show up here and there in different forms. You know, sometimes it's green, sometimes it's blue, sometimes it's red, but it's basically the same thing coming up. So those are the things we want to want to see about this. Okay, any, any uh, other comments, observations, or anything tonight? Yes. 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 Yeah, absolutely. It was the same. It gets back. That's why uh, the, the point was that, that the, it recapitulates what happened in the garden all over again. And that is why Genesis 3 is an extremely important text. I mean, there's just about three or four verses in that Genesis chapter 3. But you've got to go over them and over them until you, in your mind's eye you could place yourself in Eve's place and sense what she senses in Adam and see yourself doing that. Because if you can, that illuminates the basic heart. It's, the, it's a question of, of the self contained authority of God. God does not need to refer to authority outside of himself. And that's why, although Jesus does confirm himself, he says, read the, you know, the laws of Moses and so on, he does refer to Scripture. The point is, however, that the Lord Jesus occasionally doesn't. He says, this is what I said. It's right. And that's his deity showing when he does that. That's the other thing that we're going to learn about in the Gospels is... In certain passages, his deity does not show. It's his humanity is showing up. And if you were there and I were there with cameras and recorders and conversation, we'd swear this is just a man. His deity doesn't show. And then at other times, suddenly there's a flash and his deity is there and then it's gone again. It's almost like the light comes on and then comes out. He's God all the time, but these things happen. The Mount of Transfiguration, you know, all of a sudden, there he is in his glory. And then it goes away. And then he goes down and he's eating sandwiches with everybody. But we're going to see that that's not a sign of weakness. What that is, is a sign that the God of the universe is so close to us. We are so made in his image. Our hands are the, the perfect tool of what it looks like when it says the arms and hands of God. Not that they, these are God, but they are a finite replica of his hands. So God could contain himself in a human being and not feel constrained 
because he designed his own human being. So it's an affirmation of the design of man. It's a powerful, powerful thing. And it also is a living reputation of evolution. Because if man is the only part of creation that is made in God's image, then it follows that man is utterly distinct from every part of the other creation. And therefore, there's no continuity between man and non-man. So all these things, I think, will um, serve to encourage us in our faith of the basic framework of the scriptures. Okay, if there are no other questions, um, we hope you have a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, and we'll see you after New Year's. Have a good time. <laughs>